This episode is brought to you by Paraswap, the leading aggregator to find best prices across various DEXs. You'll hear more about them later in the show. We need to solve education around you know, owning a piece of the internet. That's how people understand that this is a massive opportunity that they want to participate in. And to date, they've, they've demonstrated that they are, their thumbs will learn, so to speak, which is what Steve Jobs said you know, to, to reporters that were criticizing the iPhone because it didn't have a keyboard, right? People figured it out because it was worth figuring out. everyone quick reminder nothing said on empire is a recommendation to buy or sell securities or tokens this podcast is for informational purposes only and any views expressed by anyone on the show are solely our opinions not financial advice santiago and i and our guests may hold positions in the companies funds or projects discussed now let's get into the show all right everyone welcome to another episode of empire we have not one, but two special guests, and we're joined by Santiago. We've got the whole gang here. Uh, we've got Jesse Walden and Lee Jen, both from Variant. Uh, for those who don't know Jesse, backgrounds in the music and media industry, founded Cool Managers to uh, help artists expand their, their reach and their business, uh, then founded a, uh, a crypto media startup called Media Chain Labs, got acquired by Spotify, went over to A16Z, then launched Variant, and then uh, in October of 2021, linked up with... Um, uh, Lee Jin, uh, when uh, her fund Atelier, Atelier, I'm sure I'm botching the pronunciation of that, merged with Variant Fund. Atelier. Uh, Atelier, amazing. Okay, cool. And uh, yeah, Lee was also at, spent some time at A16Z, has been investing in consumer platforms, marketplaces, networks, all that fun stuff. We're going to talk about creator economy, ownership economy, DAOs, NFTs. But before we do that, Jesse and Lee, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Plus one. Thank you for having us. Yeah, of course. Of course. I'm super excited about this one. When I think about Jesse, the first word that comes to mind is like ownership economy. And when I think about you, Lee, the first thing that comes to mind is the creator economy. So I think actually just a good starting place. I wanted to get your guys' take on how do you two define ownership economy versus creator economy? Is one a bucket inside of each other? Uh, how do you define it maybe internally? Do you agree on it? What do you think of variant? Um, yeah, maybe let's start with the definitions of ownership economy and creator economy. So I describe it as a Venn diagram where there's over there's an overlap in the middle, but then there's also creator economy without ownership. And then there's there's a broader world of ownership economy that is outside of what people typically conceptualize as content creators. Um, but there's definitely like an overlap um, where the creator economy is overlapping with the ownership economy. Um, so the creator economy, uh, to start off with that definition, I would define as like the economy in which people are creating content, building an audience on the internet, and then monetizing that in a whole host of different ways. Um, and the trends around monetization and how people have built their audiences have changed over time. In the past couple of years, it's really shifted to direct monetization of one's audience. And so there's been the rise of all sorts of like direct monetization platforms like Patreon and Substack. Um, and I think of NFTs and social tokens really as an extension of direct monetization opportunities for creators that involve digital ownership. Um, and that's where you start to get into to the overlap area. Um, but yeah, broadly, the, the creator economy, as I think of it, is people monetizing their online presence and contributions in different ways. Um, and historically, when people think about creator economy, they think about advertising and brand sponsorships. But it's increasingly about finding new ways of directly monetizing one's audience as well. 
And then um, the ownership economy. Uh, well, Jesse, maybe you want to talk about the ownership economy since you coined that term. Sure. So in, 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 in one sentence, the, the ownership economy is the idea that all next generation internet products and services are making ownership a keystone of the user experience. Um, and you know, to Lee's point, this is happening across lots of different verticals. It, it is happening in sort of consumer tech and, and sort of you know a subset therein, which is the creator economy. It's happening in financial marketplaces um, in DeFi. It's happening in developer-facing infrastructure. And it actually sort of played out um, in reverse order. So if you rewind the tape all, all the way back to 2009, you know, Bitcoin inception, um, Ethereum shortly thereafter, those were networks built, operated and owned by users and, and the early users of these networks were developers and technologists um, who you know, understood the, the capacity for digital tokens to transfer ownership value to them irrespective of their you know, geographic location. All that was necessary was, was an internet connection. Um, and you know, th this is, I guess, in, in some ways not surprising because Silicon Valley has known for a very long time, if you want to get the best technologists and developers to contribute to your project, you've got to give them ownership. And generally that takes the form of employee stock options. Um, so the new thing here was being able to earn an ownership stake in a network or platform that was not originating from Silicon Valley, not using employee stock options as, as sort of the vehicle for distributing ownership, but instead using crypto tokens to distribute that ownership value directly to the users who are contributing it, in, in this case, developers and technologists. And there's this like age old Dixonism that I always refer to that, that you know, Chris wrote about 10 plus years ago, that what developers and, and technologists do nights and weekends is what the rest of us will do in 10 years. And so, um, you know, having been an entrepreneur, like building a, an early network that was facing developers and, and then sort of starting to invest in the space in 2018, where we were largely focused on developer facing infrastructure, I sort of had the privilege of seeing what it is exactly developers were doing sort of nights and weekends and, and what the rest of us might be doing in 10 years. And that was, you know, exactly what I said, building networks that they owned a piece of in exchange for their contributions. And so that was the spark. Um, for, for what became this, this broader thesis that this was going to be the future of all next generation um, consumer internet technologies. And we've seen that play out very rapidly across the markets. I mentioned, you know, DeFi financial marketplaces and, and consumer marketplaces, NFTs, consumer social. So when you guys are like, when you are seeing something like these NFTs, I feel like uh, you both have been talking about this for many, many years, right? Ownership economy, passion economy, creator economy. And now it's just kind of coming to life. Uh, you know, I think it was about a year ago that Beeple sold the NFT for 69 million. And, and now it's really just taken off. You have photography. I just collected my first uh, one of one photography NF uh, NFT, like music NFTs are really taking off now. And I know you guys invested in sound. Why is now the time that all of this is taking place when Jesse, I think you started working on media chain in like 2014 or 2015. Like why is March of 2022 the time that it feels like, okay, all of this is actually happening for the, for, you know, for the first time. I think it's that um, there, there's just sort of a confluence of, of like cultural factors coming to a head um, where, you know, on the one hand, we, we've just gone through, um, you know, massive internet adoption cycle broadly. This is sort of on a, on a macro level, right? Like the last 10, 20 years, just people spending more and more time online. 
Two is an, a super sort of inflationary environment that's only starting to be appreciated right now, but was sort of very obvious to anyone paying attention, right? Which is, um, you know, if governments print a ton of money, chances are there's there's going to be inflation that happened in a big way with with COVID. Um, and one of the results of that, of course, was the sort of like everything bull market of the last two years, um, where we saw, you know, meme stocks um, sort of play out and, and um, you know, crypto become part of the conversation in, in a really dominant way in financial markets. Um, and culturally, I think, you know, those two things combined to have a really big effect, which is um, a new kind of like consumer behavior emerge and that consumer behavior is investing as a team sport that you play with your friends online, right? Whether it's whether it's GameStop or Dogecoin or NFTs, like investing is now a, a consumer phenomenon and it's a social phenomenon as well. Um, and, and so, um, you know, internet users are better than um, traditional, you know, investors at playing this team sport because it's, it's sort of being played on, on their home turf. Um, and, and so, you know, NFTs are cultural assets, right? Like who understands how to invest in, you know, cultural internet assets, it's, it's you know, people who use the internet often, um, and it's not traditional investors. And so basically you have this, you know, this new asset class emerge, this new sort of, you know, cultural phenomenon of investing as, you know, consumer behavior that lots of people participate in and, and, and in therein you got the, the makings for a highly reflexive marketplace um, for the, these new assets um, that just compounded in on itself. Once you, once you saw people sell, sell that you know, NFT for $69 million, it began a whole lot more interest from other artists who then entered the market and other collectors who followed and, and you know, that cycle compounded. Yeah, I would just add to that, that I think it really happened in early 2021. Um, like I would pinpoint that as, as the moment in which like a lot of this started to erupt and break into the mainstream. And I think another influence in addition to everything that Jesse mentioned is like, I think the impact of COVID cannot be understated. Um, and that as like a macro factor influencing um, internet usage, engagement on these social platforms, like if you looked at any creator economy companies during that time period, post COVID, post lockdowns, like the numbers were all up and to the right. Every company that I spoke to was astounded at how all of their forecasts kept being beat month over month. Like just the numbers were beyond what they had ever anticipated because people were locked at home without anything to do for entertainment and to divert themselves. They consumed content from content creators. They tried their hand at being content creators on the internet. They tried to monetize in entirely new ways. They were questioning their existing careers and livelihoods. And so it was just this huge moment of upheaval in everyone's habits and lifestyles that then I think led to this surge in participation of um, retail investors, but also content creation online, um, people wanting to find new ways to monetize that online activity. Um, and so I, I think a lot of that also played into it. That's a really interesting point. You have this um, 
peacefully about the four phases of their creator economy. You got like phase one is like beginning of the internet, blog posts, early social, posting on Twitter, things like that. Phase two is you build a huge brand on Instagram and all this kind of stuff and you kind of act as a conduit, I think is the word that you use for other brands. Phase three is you stop being the conduit for other brands and you move over to things like Substack and you kind of build this direct monetize, uh, monetization with your super fans. And phase four is you move from, from the creator economy to the community economy. Can you just give us a your view into, I think you, you actually have a better view into this than really anyone in the world. Like, where are we today? What does it look like today? Because to me, as this kind of outsider, but who's also in crypto, I'm not investing in the creator economy platforms like you guys are. I still see all these journalists and things like that moving over to a Substack. I still see things like Substack becoming really big. But to you, uh, you guys are on the forefront. Um, and it feels like what you're looking at is people maybe moving away from the substacks of the world and starting to move into actually building user-owned platforms. But would love to just hear your insights into where you think we are in this timeline and where we are in these phases. Yeah. Yeah, this was a tweet storm that I published maybe a couple of months ago. Um, and I said that we are currently sort of in the in the later stages of creator economy 3.0, which is creators as their own brands, finding ways to um, monetize their followings in new novel direct ways. Um, and then we're on the cusp of this transition to the community economy um, phase four. Um, so I think in, in terms of where we are in that transition, I think it's still early, but you can see examples already occurring of creators who are co-creating and sharing value back to their communities. Um, and to, to actually back up a moment um, to, to frame this idea. So uh, I think a lot of people describe um, like web two versus web three um, sort of philosophies and like design as being um, like the web two platforms being value extractive um, from their participants. They are, you know, there's, there's the owners of the platforms and then there's the participants on top who are leveraging them to earn income, but don't actually own or have any sort of governance rights over the underlying platforms themselves. Um, versus Web3, in contrast, it, there's oftentimes a vision of co-ownership and co-stewardship of the platforms themselves. Well, I think there's also a parallel to that in the creator economy where today the creators are kind of the underlying platforms and they're extracting from their fans on top. Um, their fans are sort of the ones who are responsible for the, the success of the creator in the first place. Like without the fans, the creators can't be successful by, by definition. And yet the creator is capturing the value. Like the fans are paying out, um, you know, money from their own pockets and the creators are accruing that value. Um, and all of these dynamics sort of belie the actual nature of contribution and work on the internet, which is that everyone is contributing in their own ways. Like everyone is a content creator to some degree. Everyone is a creator and contributing to some degree. It's just that all of those micro um, contributions aren't being adequately measured or rewarded or compensated in any way. So today, if you think of creators as the, as the platforms and the fans as being the party that is sort of responsible for the creator's success, but not actually accruing any of the value from their success, then I think the 
the next phase of the creator economy, the so-called community economy, as I mentioned, is one in which everyone, everyone's contributions is rewarded and recognized and valued. And everyone um, is able to benefit from the upside of their participation. So to, to make that more concrete, what does this look like? I think it looks like, um, I mean, this is already happening. Like creators are already turning over some decisions to their fans. They're already taking input from people who then feed into their content creation. Like when I write a blog post, I oftentimes crowdsource examples from my Twitter followers when I can't think of any examples. Like I just pose that as a question on Twitter and then hundreds of people respond and I weave some of those into my blog posts. They don't really get any sort of value back from that today. But I think um, the audience is already a core part of content creation. And so I think where all of this goes is that everyone has some some stake in the success of that co-creation and is able to benefit from it. And to that point, um, do you think that there are certain use cases that might be more suitable or easy, or I guess would gain more traction than perhaps like social media applications like Twitter? I mean, the the like the energy to create a new social network seems high, although not impossible. Uh, you know, in this example that you you just mentioned, you're still using Twitter. There have been attempts to decentralize social networks. You have kind of pretty. I'm curious to get your thoughts on like the the curation aspect of it. Like in, in a totally kind of permissionless world, you can have some pretty weird stuff in in the sense of like there's no censorship, there's no like curation. Like obviously there are scams in NFT land where seems to me like there's an influx of creators, uh, some of which might not, like there is value in curation. And so I'm curious to get your thoughts around, like, do these worlds, like in, in, in this new kind of Web3 world where community ownership is important, like wh where does the value of curation and like come into play? We were discussing this topic last week during the Lens Protocol Hackathon. Um, basically, I think the vision and and all of this is like very much i mean at some level it's all a hypothesis because it hasn't been played out yet but i think the um the vision is that curation will be a function of um users voting with their feet so what you have in this new paradigm of decentralized social media is all of the underlying data including the content itself the social graph, your relationships, your identity, that's going to be um, like publicly accessible and open as basically a public utility. It's going to live on chain. And then various developers can compete to build applications on top of that and perhaps different algorithms to surface different types of content to users in different feeds. And so versus today where we have just a handful of social media platforms, each with their own siloed databases, you could have um, a multitude of different applications that compete on the basis of having perhaps the best curation or being tailored to a certain interest area or um, weighting your social graph differently or something like that. Um, and so the, the place for curation, I think, is at that layer on top where users are opting in to decide, like, I want to use this application that provides this level of curation or, um, you know, information is more or less like 
verified than this other application. I think the interesting question that arises from that is like, um, what happens to misinformation in that world and the propagation of, um, yeah, things that like information that has not been verified or is just like patently false. I think that's still an unsolved problem. Although to be fair, you know, like like t- Twitter, especially Facebook, I remember during the election, I mean, it's kind of impossible for them to, I mean, they have a team that is trying to verify fake news, but that's not to say that they've they've solved the issue. Like they struggle right. with this too as well. Um, and so, I, I mean, perhaps what you're saying is the community might take, um, when you're part of a network and you have ownership, um, then perhaps... The optimist in me says, well, people are going to be more incentivized to to verify and maybe get rewarded if they are taking down fake news. And if like wisdom of the crowds kind of like converges on the truth versus like, you know, a team of 20 people on Facebook headquarters trying to verify, you know, news from different sources. Lee, I, I, I saw one of your posts, I think it was af- actually after uh, the Lens Protocol hackathon or maybe before, it was in relationship to the Lens Protocol. You said the biggest opportunity that exists now in crypto is creating social networks that couldn't have existed in the previous paradigm, new networks that can exist but currently don't. And then Jesse, I like I was thinking back to what you were building with Media Chain, which was really a decentralized backend for media platforms is the way I kind of understand it. Um little bit like all the content is on one place and it can kind of get propagated to different front ends and things like that when when you uh maybe lee if you want to start here like why is this what what does a decentralized social media even look like is it that the user's identities are all are all stored on chain and then the front ends are just kind of different like DeFi, or uh where money is stored on chain and the front ends and the actual actions that you can take on platforms is different or why what like what does a decentralized social network look like? And do you think that it looks a lot different than something like an Instagram and a Twitter? Or does something like Twitter just almost move on chain? Yeah. So the reason why I um, tweeted that, or like that that quote that was pulled from, yeah, the hackathon discussion, um, saying that the biggest opportunity is to build like net new consumer experiences that couldn't exist in Web2. Um, and that basically I was encouraging the participants in the hackathon to like think bigger, think beyond what currently exists instead of trying to like port, you know, an existing like Twitter or Facebook or whatever, and just bring it on chain. Um, challenging them to think of like, what are new applications that could only exist in a decentralized paradigm? Um, so, I mean, to, to provide additional context to that, my personal view is that, Web 2 and Web 3 are going to coexist in the future. Like, I don't think Web 3 supplants all of the applications that people are using today. I think they still have their time and place. I think they're good for the specific things that we seek from them. Like, they have a job to be done that they do well. Um, Like, existing social networks are really good for status signaling or today, like, broadcasting your thoughts to the entire world. You know, there's 3 billion users on Facebook who can see your posts. Um, And so I think trying to compete against Web2 applications on the same dimensions, like head-to-head, is kind of a losing battle. So instead, I I think the opportunity is to build entirely new applications that can't exist today. And so an example that I gave um, during the hackathon was 
there there are social networks that do not currently exist that should exist that have had issues going from zero to one and reaching the level of liquidity in their network in order to provide an interesting and compelling consumer experience. So an example of this would be there still is not a local social network. There is no social networking application that lets me know like in a five minute radius of where I am right now, like what is going on in the world that just simply does not exist. Um, there's no place on the internet that I can go to find like what is happening one mile away from me right now. Um, and various developers have tried to build that experience, but none of them have like overcome the cold start challenge of like getting enough users on for that network to tip. And I think like that is the beauty of token incentives um, of like helping to get a network beyond that cold start challenge and getting into the level of liquidity that is needed. So that was one um, example that uh, I gave of like thinking beyond what currently exists. And then I think more broadly speaking, um, like I, I, I oftentimes describe like blockchains as social networks already. They are already networks in which people are interacting with different accounts and engaging in transactions but there's always a value associated with every interaction. Um, and so internally, we've we've described this as it's a social network with skin in the game versus a social network in which people are just self-reporting or like posting content that could or could not be like real. Um, they're, they're doing it for status on existing social networks because the cost of doing anything is completely free and frictionless. But on a blockchain, Everything has value associated with it, and people are um, are taking actions with real skin in the game. I'll just maybe I'm going to push back a little bit just because I'm skeptical. I think the 2017, 2018 crypto person in me is that's like when I entered into the industry, and that like almost left a very skeptical view in my head of like decentralized social media because it was like steam it was all the rage if you guys remember steam it and i just it feels almost like a maybe a skeuomorphic idea that it's like uber on the blockchain it's like all right putting putting instagram on the blockchain so so jesse when you think about decentralized social what does this look like to you is it moving twitter and instagram onto the blockchain is it kind of like what lee said where there are these other social networks that should exist but just don't or, or is it something completely different that we're not thinking about yeah, it's definitely more aligned with, with Lee's point of view. I think I'm I'm not a fan of you know anything skeuomorphic or you know trying to take X and, and decentralize it. Um, rather, you know, the focus should, should absolutely be on building things that benefit. Um, but you know, from from the pr properties of crypto, which are you know again ownership as a key to the user experience, um, or or something that is only enabled uniquely by the technology. And so, my sense is. Um, you know, social networks are going to are going to take a different form, and, and some early examples of that today are um, some you know membership groups that are affinity groups that I think are forming around asset ownership. So there you know there's friends with benefits where you know they aim to be sort of like a, a you know a social club for members um, who own a token and are aligned around the idea of growing that token's value, growing the value of the social network. And and when I say value, I don't only mean financial value. That's one of the unique things about crypto. These are not corporations, right? So corporations have one singular value, which is to maximize shareholder profits, right? Like that is the the reason debt for, you know, for any corporation. Crypto networks are not corporations. So they have the opportunity to define value 
however the members would like to. It could be financial value. It could be financial plus some kind of other social value. And Friends with Benefits is a good example of a community that's sort of evolving their values in real time um, and creating sort of a social network that lives on top of, but distinctly from the, you know, the Web2 social platforms that, you know, create shelling points for, for people to jump into this new kind of social network. I think you're seeing the same kind of thing happen in NFT communities where membership is gated by owning, you know, a, a punk or an ape or, you know, a, a noun. Um, and so the, these are, I would describe sort of new social networks that exist on top of existing social networks where people are, for example, you know, displaying those NFT, you know, membership badges as their profile pics. This is like the early incarceration of, of a new generation of social project. And zooming out from social specifically, I think like um, another framework here is that crypto enables um, a, a very wide array of new kinds of networks on one end of the spectrum. It enables networks that are way bigger than any Web2 platform could ever dream to be. So, for, so you know, the the idea of, a, of internet money is, you know, a, a network, um, you know, money is sort of the, the biggest global network in the world, right? It's, it's, it's the, the idea that there's going to be sort of a global internet money is much, much bigger than even the biggest, you know, social media platform or, or internet platform in Web2 could ever dream to be. And it only can exist because of decentralization. Like it doesn't make sense for, for a corporation to issue internet money because it's not credibly neutral. So that, that's an example of a new kind of network um, uniquely enabled by crypto. On the other end of the spectrum, there's going to be an extremely long tail of networks that didn't make sense to build in the, in the web two environment um, because the coordination costs were too high, um, right? Like a, an example, one example is the one Lee threw out earlier, like, you know, a social network for what's happening locally in my city, you know, the coordination costs were too high. How do you get that to tip? I think other examples might be, you know, you want to create um, a guild of, you know, six talented designers who each live in different countries, right? And really want to work together. They, they met online, they, they're great collaborators, um, and they're building digital products. But, you know, coordinating six people in six different countries to set up an entity, set up bank accounts, it's, it's you know, it, it's very high cost, high friction, um, not going to happen easily. Right. Crypto, it's just a smart contract. So, so that's a new kind of network on the on the complete other end of the spectrum where that it didn't make sense to form that network um, on the legacy rails. But, but crypto uniquely enables it. So I, I think we're going to see this, you know, this sort of bifurcation that will play out across you know, many different types of verticals. But social is one of them where, where you will have, you know, you know, membership groups that are that are absolutely massive and, and others that um, are extremely long tail tying together an idea from Jesse, an idea from Lynn, and I'm sure what is a really idea, bad idea for me, which is Jesse, your idea of like money as the largest network. Lee, it makes me think about something that you said in the January episode with Bankless of the four, the, what was it, Mark Andreessen, like the original sin of the internet. You know, you, we see like 404 errors, but really there, there could have been a 402 error when we tried, you know, but this is, I think uh, my understanding is like we tried to embed payments into web pages, but like it just never really took off for several different reasons. Uh, when I think about like what the future social social network should look like, it's having money embedded directly into social, which actually kind of already exists. Like if you uh, take a different lens on social media, Venmo, I guess you could almost say Venmo and Cash App are massive social media companies um, in a way. Um, and so it, it, I'm curious to get your guys' take. And it's never a good idea to come up with new ideas on a podcast. But uh, what would you guys? 
think if you guys saw like a pitch or something like that for a new social network that maybe looks something like a Twitter or an Instagram or something like that, but there were native payments directly embedded into the network, almost like a Venmo cash app meets like a web 2 e type of social network. Good idea, bad idea. What are we thinking? I mean, I think what you're describing is basically a blockchain. Like that is essentially like a feed of transactions that are happening among people. Um, and you can sort of see anyone's interactions with any other account. Um, I think the beauty of a blockchain is like there's so many different types of assets and tokens and like applications that people are interacting with. It's a much richer consumer experience and design space than just your Venmo feed or your PayPal feed. Um, I think people often comp Venmo to a social network or they point out PayPal as a social network, but I, I don't know the actual stats, but I really doubt that they have as high of engagement and usage as like a content driven social network. And that's because content is just inherently more expressive and therefore people can do more with it and create more interesting stuff that draws in more users and people come back for that. Versus individual financial transactions being sent between your friends, like th there's just a much limited, um, much more limited, uh, like creative expression that you can do through that. So I, I I agree with you that there are like social networks that are built around um, payments and financial transactions, but I, I think it looks more than just what we see in Venmo. Yeah, I think actually a really good example um, is. Uh, something like context, which context.app is, is the is the website. And if you, if you go there, it'll look like pretty familiar um, in that it's, you know, it's a, it's a visual feed of, of images, um, not unlike, you know, Instagram or, or Tumblr or some, you know, so web two social network that you'd be accustomed to. But the, the thing that's different is each unit in the feed is not a JPEG, it's an NFT. And the caption is not so-and-so posted this, rather it's so-and-so did this action on chain, like so-and-so bought this or so-and-so swept the floor, right? So these are, again, to Lee's point, you know, blockchains are social networks, right? They're, they're feeds of transactions, they're economic links that are being forged between people. And that's inherently social. Money is the biggest, you know, network. You could argue it's the biggest social network um, or socioeconomic network. And, um, and you know blockchains are the same thing, um, and and so what context is doing is just visualizing that in a human legible way, right? A visual way. Um, so so that that's really interesting to me, and I think is as close as I'll come to saying that the you know the future of, of Web three social looks similar to the, to Web two social. It looks similar in its presentation, but again, there's like there's a ton of nuance and important differences in in what's happening in the feed. It's it, each unit is skin in the game. It's something that already happened, you know, verifiably so, and something that you can also do yourself. So if I see, you know, Santiago purchase XNFT, maybe I can, you know, mirror his trade, for example, right? I can I can follow him in, in that economic way, not just in a, you know, superficial social way. Empire is brought to you by Paraswap, which just reached a whole new level in the DeFi game. Paraswap started as a DEX aggregator, which for those who don't know, it's like a Google flights or an Expedia for swapping crypto. You would obviously never just go directly to an airline's website. Uh, same thing with crypto. You would never go directly to an exchange uh, to trade or to swap. You'd go to Paraswap. Why? Because they aggregate liquidity from more than 60 different sources uh, to get you the best prices and the most efficient gas transactions. 
Now, Paraswap, obviously still the best aggregator out there, but now there's more. They now have staking, they have yield farming. Uh, there's this one feature that I love. Uh, it shows you exactly how much money Paraswap saved you on your last trade. They're now on five different blockchains. They've got Ethereum, Binance, Polygon. They recently added Avalanche and Phantom. So it's really simple. If you're an Empire listener, if you are new to DeFi or you're a power user of DeFi, really anybody, if you're dabbling in DeFi markets, you have got to try Paraswap. Their new staking and yield farming products are a game changer. They've taken DeFi to the next level with really one of the first mature DeFi products that I've ever seen. So head on over to paraswap.io. That is paraswap.io and start swapping, trading, staking, and so much more today. Okay, so a creator listening to all this is certainly, it resonates with a lot of people owning, getting a more more equitable distribution that is tied to the value you provide as a user, as a content creator. Like, I think like a lot of people at this point don't contest that, don't disagree with that. I think the criticisms that we constantly, I think at this point, at this juncture where crypto is in the adoption cycle is um, the ease by which you can use these protocols and these networks. Um, And so I'm curious to get your perspective, what you're seeing uh, on the ground uh, when you think about social media applications and, you know, things that are tied to NFTs. Um, Do you think that crypto in this cycle or, you know, how far out are we from truly kind of reaching mainstream adoption? And I guess you could argue that NFTs have to some extent or gaming like something like Axie has gotten decent traction, but I wouldn't think that we're, we're yet in mainstream kind of phase. But I'm curious to, to get your thoughts on this. Yeah, yeah. No, I, th- I think we're we're very very early in the early majority adoption cycle. So so I think it's fair to argue, may- maybe said differently, we're somewhere between the early adopter phase and the very beginning of the early majority phase. And you know, there's this great sort of bell curve of you know a very steep ramp up in early majority adoption, and and then sort of you plateau, and, and then there's the the late majority, right? That um, that sort of come comes on later. Um, and, and growth is slowing at that point, right? You know, that, it's, that's where I'd say we're at. Um, but, but I would caveat, but, but, you know, a lot of people take this to mean that, you know, the, the primary problem to solve is, you know, somehow dumbing crypto down, making it, making it simpler, abstracting it completely, you know, our arguments that, you know, it, it should disappear into the background. Um, and on the one hand, I'm sympathetic to that point of view. You know, I think, I think, Crypto succeeds when we no longer talk about crypto, just like we no longer, you know, distinguish between, you know, internet products and services. There's just, you know, there's apps that we use, right? And um, like, you know, we don't talk about Uber as like internet cars, for example. Um, we do, we do talk about, you know, NFTs as digital collectibles or or you know, crypto collectibles or whatever. Um, so so there's some degree of sort of abstraction or fading to the background that needs to happen. But I would say the other thing that um, that has been pleasantly surprising in, in this cycle, and I've been I actually tweeted about this this morning, is is the degree to which culture has met crypto where it's at, rather than crypto having to cater to the current culture, right? So like, you know, you have Snoop Dogg dropping on on Sound um, because he he understands crypto, and he understands you know that there's money to be made and that his fans will engage him there. Right. So he's willing to take take a chance, be an early adopter or arguably, you know, one of the early majority adopters um, and bring his his fan base to the platform rather than having crypto try to cater to where his fans already at are already at. Um, so I think there's some degree of um, 
I would say the primary problem to solve is education. The vast majority of people don't understand the value of ownership because it's not something that's been accessible to them before, right? Like, you know, the American dream is to own your house. Never before has it been possible to own a piece of the internet. Um, that's not possible for the very first time. And people are starting to wake up to that. You know, it's one, it's one hop to, to understand, oh, I can own this JPEG or I can own, you know, part of, part of an NFT collection to suddenly I can own a piece of every product and services that I use every day. Right. That's like one one leap that, you know, educational leap that people still most people are still yet to make. And so when I think about the synthesis of, you know, we need to simplify crypto and versus the, the hypothesis that crypto is you know going to be met by culture rather than cater to existing culture. The synthesis is that we need to we need to solve education around, you know, owner, owning a piece of the Internet. That's how people understand that this is a massive opportunity that they want to participate in. And to date, they've, they've demonstrated that they are, their thumbs will learn, so to speak, which is what Steve Jobs said you know, to, to reporters that were criticizing the iPhone because it didn't have a keyboard, right? People figured it out because it was worth figuring out. What are the unintended consequences or maybe the downsides of this? And the re- Maybe that's the wrong way to put it, but I was, I was reading this uh, Mr. Beast thing that he put out, like Mr. Beast, biggest creator on YouTube, right? And uh, someone who was interviewing him, I forget who it was, said, do you want to own, like, why do, oh, they first said, why, why don't you go move on to your own platform? Why don't you create your own platform? He's like, because I love YouTube. YouTube's given me so much. And then they're like, well, should YouTube give you equity? Should YouTube give you ownership? Obviously, he could just go buy Google stock or Alphabet stock or whatever. But uh, he's like, he's like, I don't want to be an owner. He's like, I have no interest in being an owner. I am an owner of my own business. And these platform, he's like, I don't need to be an owner in YouTube. They're doing a phenomenal job. I get paid $100 million a year. I and so is there, I guess, the downside part of this, like or the early part of this question about like downsides and unintended, unintended consequences of making everyone an owner in web two, like not everyone becomes an entrepreneur, not everyone's an, an owner because you're basically taking, you're levering up your risk reward. You know, if you're an employee, your risk reward is like, it's in, it's in this range. If you're an owner, your risk reward is in this range. So do we have the same kind of, uh, uh, 10x amplified risk reward when everyone in society becomes an owner? I get this a lot, by the way, there's, there's a lot of like, um, staunch traditional creator economy people who respond to the writing that I put out there and some of my tweet storms. And they're like, creators don't want to own or they are not qualified to be owners. Like they, well, you're basically they no calling business. me like a, a boomer web two person here. I, I, I understand how it is. <laughs> I, I did not say that about you. <laughs> I'm not going to name names. Um, but like, I, I do think there is like, I'll, I'll say this, like ownership is really multifaceted. When we talk about ownership, it's not this monolithic conceptualization that we have in mind. I think ownership comes in, many different flavors and there's lots of different ways to design what ownership looks like. So um, when people say that creators shouldn't be owners of these platforms, I think what they're referring to is they shouldn't be responsible for the product roadmap or feature decisions of that particular platform. So they're talking about governance um, as like one particular component of ownership. But then I think there's this other side of ownership, which is economic rights and claims to future cash flows. When people invest in businesses or invest in the stock market, that's really what they're looking for. I, I don't think anyone ever participates in like the shareholder 
votes for public companies that they're invested in. So the economic component of ownership is another separate dimension that I think most people actually do care about. And I, I think you'd be hard pressed to find anyone who would argue that creators shouldn't have economic benefits from their participation and usage of these these networks. Like, I don't think Mr. Beast would be very happy if he used YouTube and drove so many views, but didn't get paid a cut of their advertising revenue, which YouTube now gives to creators. So I think ownership um, exists on this like spectrum of um, level of owner responsibility. And also there's like different dimensions of that responsibility. There's economic um, benefits, there's there's governance responsibilities. And so I think um, it's like this huge design space on which you can create like the, the right type of ownership experience for the user. But what we're saying um, when we talk about the ownership economy is not necessarily that every single person, every single participant needs to have their voice be an input into every single micro decision of these products. Do you think that um, the quality of content uh, improves dramatically? And what I mean by that is, on one end of the spectrum, I think that if you're the life of an influencer is initially you you put out really authentic content, and over time that gets corrupted because you sort of need to you know understand that like because you're not being compensated as well using a platform like YouTube or whatever. It just you end up selling to a brand. You end up you know partnering with certain brands, and then it, lo- it tampers with the authenticity of the content. I think to sort of this curve. Um, and so, if you're getting a higher share, if you're connecting directly with your audience, and you might not need to sell out to a brand, you might just continue to be really authentic and 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 thrive that way. So that's one end of the spectrum that I think is pretty interesting when it comes to directly engaging with your audience, whether you're an artist or whether you're an influencer or of fashion or whatever. On another end of the spectrum, we have this influx of NFTs where everyone is now creating some sort of art. And there feels to me like that side of the market, I don't fully understand it because I think there is a lot of speculation. I think there's a lot of people that are just flipping JPEGs and and want to profit off of that. And there's a supply influx and the quality is not necessarily there. It doesn't feel sustainable. Um, and so I am... I want to kind of transition here into how you think about investing um, at Variant in, in, in thematically, um, where you see kind of the biggest opportunities in this market, what feels more endurable, sustainable um, to capture kind of this new wave of creator ownership economy? I think the entire history of the internet has been one of a proliferation of content as a result of lower barriers to entry over time. And the lower barriers to entry catalyzes more participation, which then means that um, like overall, the, the quality of the best content out there is always improving. So I tend to point to the example of like TikTok versus Quibi. One was crowdsourcing content from all over the world, from content creators from anywhere. Um, as long as they had a mobile phone, they could participate in the TikTok network and, and post content there. And that content ended up being a lot more engaging and higher quality than the content that was created top down by this one individual company. So I think overall, like when you lower the barriers to entry, I think there's real creativity network effects that arise where 
people then build on top of each other and overall content quality tends to improve. I think the other question is like, how does business model impact um, content creation and the quality of output that you have out there? And I think that's a really fascinating topic. Um, There's the quote, I forgot who it's from. It's like, show me the incentive and I'll show you the outcome. Um, I think for a long time, the incentive was to appeal to brand sponsors and advertisers and to make content that would align with their interests and be easily monetizable through advertising. And that obviously impacts the type of content that people create, the look and feel of their content. I've had a conversation with um, Hank Green, who's like a big YouTuber, about how we think um, part of the differing cultures of Instagram versus TikTok actually arises from their business model differences, where um, Instagram, you have to go outside of the platform, seek brand sponsors in order to monetize as a creator, versus on TikTok, there is the um, grants program, the TikTok Creator Fund, where they're just paying you if you get a lot of engagement and time spent. And so obviously the incentives are different and that creates um, the motivation on the part of creators to to create very different types of content. Um, and then for uh, like transitioning to how we invest, um, we, we're, we're investors across the entire crypto landscape. We call ourselves a generalist crypto fund comprised of specialists, where each of us is very much um, aiming to be an expert on a particular domain or subcategory within crypto. But we're investing across the spectrum wherever user ownership is being utilized as a driver of new experiences. Um, And that encompasses consumer, but it also encompasses new financial marketplaces, developer infrastructure, new layer ones, etc. Um, so we invest across across the board. Leah, I want to go back to your um, concept on just owner, ownership and almost like what I, the Web2 boomer here, got wrong there. Um, and it ties back to this piece actually of Jesse's that I always reference um, and actually send it to a lot of founders, which is, um, Jesse, I, th- I think this was you at least, progressive decentralization. I think you wrote it like two years ago um, on A16Z's site. It was like progressive decentralization, a playbook for building crypto apps. And there were three, you know what I'm talking about? It's like you had product market fit and then you had community participation. And then there's, I think you called it like exit to the community. That was written two years ago. Do you still give founders a similar playbook? And do you still think that that is the right playbook? And can you almost just actually give an overview of your advice there? Sure. Yeah. I, so short answer is yes. I, I still think it is like the right high level framework. I think um, we've learned a lot between the time that piece was written and today um, in terms of like the specific implementation details of how, how to progressively decentralize and, and sort of do it well. And I think, you know, this is very much an evolving playbook where the best practices are still, you know, yet to be elucidated or, or like in, in progress of, of being formed. But the high level idea um, in, in that piece is, is just simply that, um, you know, when building a, a sort of user owned and operated network, um, it, you have to start by building something that people actually want. Um, and, you know, in that sense, there's really no difference between, a, a, you know, a Web3 startup and a traditional startup. Like if, if, you, if you build a product and no one wants it, um, it's gonna be really hard to, to find users. Um, you know, they're, they're the examples um, in crypto that have, have sort of gone about this the wrong way are, are those that have like started, for example, with just a token sale and then said, we'll build the product later. Um, and, you know, in, in the very rare case 
that can work. There, there are a few exceptions. Like I think, um, well, maybe I won't name specific names, but there are examples of communities that have, you know, bootstrapped something out of nothing but capital formation um, around a token. But, but I would say those are the exception, not the rule. And, and the rule is more so that in order to innovate and create sort of a, a new product that, um, you know, has, has makes an impact on the world, you have to start um, by executing really fast and, and sort of moving quickly, iterating based on, on, you know, real user feedback. And it's just really hard to do that when you're trying to form consensus by committee. You do need sort of strong opinions weekly held. And generally that means um, a little bit more sort of traditional control over how decisions get made. Um, and so sort of the classic startup structure tends to work best in, in my view. But, but the thing that's different about crypto startups and, and Web3 startups is that, um, you know, once you have early signs of product market fit, the trajectory for the project tends to change. In, in, in traditional Web2 companies, once you have product market fit, you go out and raise a bunch more venture capital in the hopes of growing um, the, the product or service, you know, in, in a blitz scale like fashion. And all that capital is taken into the company, um, you know, at the cost of dilution to the founders, the early investors, um, with the expectation that, you know, that dilution is acceptable because, um, it, you know, it will be used to, to grow the pie for everyone. So, you know, owning a little bit less of a bigger pie is, 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 is better, right? Um, well, crypto takes that same principle, but kind of flips it on its head. So, what happens is, you know, founders find early product market fit. They, they hopefully have users of their product and then they go and exit the ownership of the product to the users directly, which is also dilutive um, to the early founders and investors, but done for the same reason that, um, you know, that more venture capital is raised in traditional startups, which is that is a way to grow the pie for everyone is, is to get more users involved and align with the success of the product long term. But the key thing that I think a lot of projects have missed over the last two years since writing the piece is that last, you know, utterance I made, which is long-term alignment, um, right? You, you need to get users, you know, aligned with founders, investors who hopefully are long-term oriented around the, 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 the success of the product, not flash in the pan mercenaries, mercenaries who, who come in, use the product and then leave it for dry once, you know, once the incentives have sort of run out. And, and so early in the DeFi summer wave of 2020, which, which happened shortly after I, you know, I published that piece on progressive decentralization, um, you saw tons of, of projects exit to their community through liquidity mining programs where there was no sort of long-term alignment with users, right? Like users were in fact treating the tokens they were earning in exchange for using the product as just you know, yield short-term yield um, that they were, you know, then dumping for, for ETH or USDC or, or whatever, some other coin that they were denominating the yield. And nobody was thinking long-term about the platform value that, um, that could be accrued if, if they, you know, treated these tokens as long-term investments. And I think today you're seeing a lot, uh, a lot more thoughtful distributions of ownership um, that reward people who can be long-term by either, you know, locking up tokens um, or, or sort of having them vest and, and drip out to users over um, a longer period of time. And, and so, you know, directionally, I think that's, you know, something that needs to, to get written into the progressive decentralization playbook of, of 2022. And we're actually doing some, some work on that right now, sort of analyzing a lot of the distributions that have happened over the last couple of years, which, which sort of um, mechanisms worked well, which ones didn't work well, and, and, and sort of what results in the you know, long-term sustainable growth and retention that these projects are seeking. Yeah, 
I'd like to talk about um, what we're seeing with NFT communities, particularly board apes. Um, it has felt to me that this is a very interesting kind of inverted model of go- of, of building, uh, whereby you did a NFT sale and it's created perhaps the most strong community out there, or one of the strongest communities, and perhaps the most diversified community in crypto that touches the real world that you're seeing lead to your point of this creative innovation. You have people using this creative commons and using board apes and, and coffee shops and, you know, a bunch of other products and services. And, and it feels to me like what's stopping them from being the most popular DeFi platform. If they decide to build a DeFi application or tap into DeFi or build a layer one. Um, I remember joking there was some speculation I'm involved in Pleaser DAO and I think you guys are too. And so we were talking, okay, what, what's when we bought the Doge uh, rights, we said, well, what's stopping Doge as a network of transitioning to proof of stake and building the most widely used network out there. So I'm curious to get your thoughts around NFT communities and, you know, capturing the value of the community and then building products and services around that. When Board Ape launched, they launched with this collection of, you know, of art, right? The, the, these, you know, these JPEGs of, of unique apes. But they also launched, you know, this clubhouse, right? And which was their conception of a product. It was, a, and it, it's sort of a novel, you know, Web3 native product. But nonetheless, it was, it was a preconceived product built by a core team at Yuga Labs, right? And that was sufficient for early product market fit. So through this lens, right, they, they did progressively decentralize. They built sort of a minimum viable product that people want. They found some product market fit with an early community um, and, and directly sort of, you know, made their users owners sort of all, all in one fell swoop. Like they, they published the, you know, the, the JPEGs, they published the, the story and they had the, the sale of the NFTs. Um, nonetheless, these three steps were, were sort of present in their playbook. Since then, a lot of stuff has happened, right? Like they, you know, the community has grown exponentially. The value of the apes has grown exponentially. You have people building businesses around their apes, which they own, right? Um, and so, like, I think this is a great example of what can happen in a permissionless sort of environment where people truly own their assets, like, you know, and, and they can't get rubbed. Um, it's sort of like what I, I think uh, an analogy I've always come back to is that um, the way crypto network has evolved is, is very much like the way cities evolved. Um, you know, you, you you move to a city because there's a critical mass of people. There's infrastructure there, right? There's there's you know you know utilities that you can plug into, um, and you can you can buy some property if you're if you're you know fortunate fortunate enough to do it, and then you can build a business, right? And and that business plugs benefits from the network effects of the city. You know, I think people participating in the board ape community today are doing so for similar reasons. They're moving to the community because there's a critical mass of people there. There's some baseline infrastructure, which maybe is the apes and, and sort of the shared lore. And then they're building businesses around the assets that they own. Um, and, you know, Jenkins is is a great example. It's, it's an ape and, you know, people, are, the, the owner is building this whole sort of like entertainment um, experience around uh, Jenkins the valet, right? So I think the, the lesson to be learned here is that, you know, it, when you go through the, the like process of progressive decentralization and you do it well and people are long-term aligned with the success of the project, really amazing things can happen. You can build networks that grow bigger, faster by virtue of people sort of taking it upon themselves um, to invest in and expand the economy of that network. And, and again, that's very much like how the, the same way a city grows. Um, so, you know, if you, and, and Dixon likes to make this comparison, I think it's great. You know, if you compare that to like Disneyland, 
Um, of course, you can't build a business in Disneyland because they, you know, Disney, the company owns it, right? So that, that's why I think, you know, cities are a good analogy, you know, because they're completely permissionless um, open economies that anyone can build on top of. I think it's really interesting to diff Board Ape and what has happened with that community versus all of the other myriad NFT collections that have popped up over the last year but have faded out. I think as I listened to Jesse describe the Board Ape sort of factors of success, I think it hit upon like the right combination of um, like centralization and decentralization in combination, actually, where from day one, there was this very actively engaged core team um, who were proactive in creating the storylines and experiences. And, and I remember the initial website with like, um, I think it, there was like a bathroom in there or something. Anyways, there were, there were a bunch of different like rich experiences that you could access only if you held the board ape token. And so from day one, there was like a reason um, for people to want to join and then I think there's also like a little bit of a, a butterfly effect where um, there's a path dependency where depending on those initial members who are part of the community, either additional members want to join or not because they see who is already involved. And so the, the path that like Board Ape trod has led to its success versus, you know, like everything else out there that has maybe faded out or not has not have had the same level of continued engagement among their token holders, I think perhaps um, they didn't have that combination of like, maybe they were too decentralized from day one, expecting their community members to be engaged from the get-go and create a lot of those experiences from the get-go. Um, and secondly, like, I, I think there's like network effects are like capturing lightning in a bottle. And I think Board Ape captured on something where like the initial members were, um, like, yeah, the, the initial, initial members were a community that other people wanted to join versus I think a lot of other NFT communities didn't have that and so tapered off. And I think critically that was, um, you know, that was managed to a degree, right? Like there was a go-to-market strategy that pointedly mm -hmm. tried to get specific people in the community to bootstrap that network. So again, you know, through this lens, like there was progressive decentralization, there was sort of premeditated pl a plan executed by a core team to build a decentralized network that would contribute more value over time. No, absolutely. I remember talking to those guys and they, they you know, this is around ETH Paris last year and, and they, they were seeing some really interesting sounds of, of total people that had never touched crypto come into their community and say, what do we do now? We want to talk every DeFi protocol. We're going to, you know, I think their vision was probably the most ambitious and I think they've executed that in a very kind of impressive way. They've now obviously recently launched a, a token. Um, they started as a collection of NFTs and they built a really nice community. H how do you think about it in this context of, and I'm, if I'm hearing you right, of, of constantly building utility, whether it's a centralized team and also the community, but it's a, it's a ten it, you're in this attention game and you want to constantly build utility. How do you think of um, that this token fits into that equation? And what is what is the business model and or what do you think this token, what do you think the purpose of this token is? I'm curious to get your thoughts on this. Um, it's early. I don't know <laughs> is, is, is my short answer. I have some ideas, some, some guesses maybe. I, so like, again, Lee's, I think Lee touched on this earlier, but ownership is a spectrum, right? There's different ways you can experience ownership. Um, you know, there's on, maybe just to simplify, there's, there's sort of like the economic sort of you know, rights or, or economic value of ownership. And then there's sort of the, 
the governance or control value of ownership. And I think what, um, and, and, and there's others too, like status and, and sort of belonging. And there's all these things sort of bundled into the experience of owning something um, that are important. And I think maybe the, um, the, the dichotomy of having sort of NFTs versus a fungible sort of governance token allows the board Ape community to explore these different dimensions sort of in parallel, um, maybe by unbundling them from, from a single asset class. Right. So like perhaps just speculating, maybe the, the you know, drift over time is that the NFTs are more experiential, more about belonging and membership and um, the, the fungible, you know, ape, ape token is more about governance, control and economics. Um, right. And, and cash flows. That, that's one possible future. And, and, you know, I think it's an interesting question to ask is. You know why not? You know, keep it all packaged into one. Keep all the value in a single asset versus fragmenting it. The answer may be just simply that there's different stakeholders in the ecosystem that gravitate towards participating in different ways. And so, you know, by unbundling the two, you 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 actually grow the base of of like who can participate and and how active they can be, um, because there's different sort of barriers to entry with each of the assets, respectively. Do you think that dilutes the the value of the NFT? Because I've always felt, you know, back to DeFi, you know, DeFi in many ways was a game. You know, you were yield farming. It felt fun. You were anyone that uh, I was, I remember, you know, I terrified yield farming yams. I mean, it felt, it's this sort of gamification of finance. It was fun in many ways. Uh, but I think the emotional cachet of an NFT, of the sport of collecting is really strong. Uh, whereas money does not have emotional cachet as much as a piece of art or an NFT. And I think that that's a, and so I'm curious, like in the internet phase, we see this bundling and unbundling constantly. Uh, I'm not sure if, if I see, if I, well, I, I guess the question, do you, does this dilute the whole reason of existence? Why even have a, a, an ape at this point? I think like one of the um, other axes of ownership, when we talk about ownership as a spectrum of experiences is also ranging from the individual all the way to the collective. So NFTs offer a very individual experience of ownership. You get exposure to that one particular asset that you own. And now what we're seeing in that community is people are taking their NFT, their, their board ape, and creating like entirely new enterprises on top of it. Like Jenkins the Ballet has now signed with, I forgot, CAA or ETA or whichever talent agency, and is now going to become like his own personality and, and have lots of media entities around him. Um, but that is like a very specific type of ownership where like, you know, I myself own this thing and I benefit from the value appreciation of this one thing. Whereas the ape token is a more community driven experience of membership where everyone owns something fungible and everyone is, um, everyone stands to benefit from the appreciation or um, everyone stands to lose if there's depreciation in the value of the ape token. So I think it's it's just a different flavor of ownership and that then compels and incentivizes people to build in different ways. And I think that has not yet begun to be explored. I think they've they've talked about how this is going to be the token that underlies like potential future games or media assets that they build around the entire collective set of IP. Um, but yeah, I, that's, that's another way that I think about NFTs versus these fungible tokens. One, one other like mental model um, or analogy that, that might be useful here is um, 
the concept of sort of different classes of stock in, in a company, right? Um, each with, which have, you know, each having different sort of governance rights and, and economic rights and so on. Um, I think like something we, we may start to see more of in the NFT community, maybe in, in DeFi or DAOs broadly is this concept of, of having different classes of owners. And again, like where, you know, each class offers a different experience um, or different benefits to the respective stakeholders. Um, so, you know, earlier we were talking about how maybe some creators don't want to be owners or don't want to, the responsibility of having to make decisions. Um, they just want to sort of, you know, make their income or they just want to focus on building their business. So maybe the, you know, that kind of experience is, is more well suited to you own a single NFT and you're building a business around that NFT, but you want nothing to do with the sort of like overall governance. Maybe that's handled by the ape token. And, and maybe what you start to see is, um, you know, co interesting combinations or composability of, of what you do with these different asset classes. So for example, maybe if you own an, an NFT and you have ape tokens, your vote counts for more than, um, you know, someone who simply owns ape tokens and doesn't, you know, own an NFT, right? And because that person's more invested or, or you know, has a different level of skin in the game. And as a result, you can have, for example, speculators who purely own the ape token for financial purposes, um, you know, and then separately you can have people who are really invested in, in the community who bought an asset, built a business around it, their vote counts for more. That allows the community to, you know, of, of people who are truly invested to express the values that they want and maybe have those values supersede the values of, um, of pure financial speculators. So, so I think there's, there's a lot of interesting design space that's sort of underexplored with, with what you can do with different classes of ownership within these communities. The last thing I want to actually just wrap this up with is um, the last topic is social tokens, actually. Um, and Lee, maybe I'd ask you uh, just A, are you guys at variant investing in any social token projects? And B, do you see social tokens as a prominent part of the creator economy and ownership economy? Yeah, I think NFTs are social tokens. Like NFTs as they're being leveraged right now are social tokens. A lot of what we had thought about and written about and um, everyone had been conjecturing about um, what social tokens could enable creators to do. That has come to fruition, but through the form of NFTs. So, um, and I think a lot of that ties back to what you were remarking on, Santi, about um, the emotional resonance that a piece of art or creative work has versus like a more abstract token that just has a ticker symbol. Um, but yeah, I think there's countless examples out there of creators whose communities have um, come together around their creative output in the form of NFTs and where the token itself functions as kind of like the, the, the thing that bonds everyone together and through which they're able to access different experiences and benefit from the success of that particular creator. Hmm. So do you think that I, I, I see what you're saying, Lee, um, like you and, and you had this in the post, like 100 true fans, fans, you've got the speculators, casual fans, active active fans, uh, super fans, and then what was the top one? Cult fans. And I see what you're saying. Like you can issue NFTs and those like there'll be a range of uh, prices that people pay. And maybe those cult fans are the ones that pay 100,000 for for your NFT. Do you see social tokens in the way that, um, oh, man, who is the guy? couple of years ago who issued a social token for himself i'm forgetting alex. i forget his name yeah alex alex yeah exactly alex do you see yeah 
Yes, exactly. Do you see social tokens in that way taking off where, you know, fans get to like almost vote on your life or anything? And the reason I'm asking is when I, there's this thing that we've probably all had here maybe with, I'm like, if you're into music or maybe if you're into like Instagram, uh, where you, where you want to tell your friends, you're like, Oh, I found that Instagram account early or, Oh, I listened to that song early. And it seems like a way to, uh, maybe capture that upside from the financial lens is social tokens in the way that like Alex Mesmedge did it. Um, but what maybe you're saying is yes, you're right, but we have that it's called NFTs. Yeah. That, that is what I'm saying. The latter. I think for the former with like a fungible token that represents that particular person's career. And I think Alex even baked in perhaps a revenue share to it from his income. I, I think that, yeah, that is still very much like, I think on the fringes of what I'm seeing and it's not very common. I think there's a lot of like creator trepidation around that model because it feels very much like they are commoditizing themselves as a person. And this token will literally be floating out there forever as a tracker of their success level. And that's a lot of pressure for a person to undertake versus NFTs, I think, um, have a closer comp, which is just like all of the creative output that people had already been selling. Um, They're used to monetizing through their creative output. And it does also function as a tracker of their success as a creator. And so I think NFTs are taking on the functions that we thought social tokens would. Sorry, one quick addendum to that is maybe this comes back around, though, in the same way that it came back around with, with Board Apes, which started with NFTs and then launched a, a governance token later. Maybe the opportunity is for, again, for, for artists, creators to progressively decentralize, start with a product that people want, which maybe is you know NFTs that open up some kind of new access or experience for engaging with their audience. And then once you have this product you progressively decentralize that and launch a token associated with the product. But, but you know, the critical difference here, you're not just tokenizing the person, you're tokenizing the product that the person launched. And, and as you know, you get something that looks kind of like a social token, but is not the same as, as what Alex was doing, which was tokenizing himself. I want to touch on two points. Um, one is um, this idea of retention um, in, in DeFi and you both touched on this, it felt, it feels very mercenary the way it's currently structured. It doesn't feel like any of these protocols, most of them haven't really focused on retaining users. And maybe it's a function of building usable products. And it's a very small subset of people that actually think about all day about liquidity mining and, you know, capturing yield on chain. There's no users. Um, And so I am curious for these NFT communities, board apes, uh, Jason and I were talking last week, you know, I think now you're going to see an influx of projects, doodles and all the others that are going to probably launch their token. And it's going to, you know, probably there's a speculative mania attached to that, which is, oh, let's go buy the next set of JPEGs because there's going to be an airdrop and you're playing this game. I'm curious, like you look at the evolution of certain social networks, like Facebook kind of died off in many ways. Instagram is probably still going strong and Twitter is, you know, pretty strong but i think over time retention is becomes an issue for these networks do you think that changes because of ownership and more direct ownership and people have more incentive to stick around or is this also going to be a problem for kind of web3 native communities and protocols i'm gonna i'm gonna answer this by coming back to the city analogy right so i think that the difference between um you know web web2 social networks or web2 platforms broadly 
crypto networks is the difference between Disneyland and New York City, right? Um, where you know one has some permissionless, you know, market-driven innovation and and sort of renewal, and and the other Disneyland is you know top-down controlled, walled garden, can't build new stuff. So the the, the critical difference is like you know the talent that exists, um, you know, within a single company. Um, it, you know, it is only so many people in the world, right? Like, and, you know, the, the, the barrier to innovating is getting a job at the company, getting buy-in, you know, innovators dilemma, overcoming that. Um, that's why Web2 platforms stagnate and die. Um, you know, New York City as yet has not died. It's, you know, it's, it's had many near-death experiences in the 70s and, you know, when it nearly went bankrupt and so on. But, you know, the thing that, you know, is amazing about New York and, and many other cities is like they're constantly able to reinvent themselves. Um, and again, that's because it's it's permissionless market-driven innovation. I think a lot of crypto networks um, will, will, will feature the same. Um, it's not, you know, of course, like all analogies break at some point. I think, you know, the, the way- This is which, sort of like um, a cathedral in the bazaar kind of construct of open source networks. Totally right, and and I think you know so so the way that crypto networks reinvent themselves over time may be you know different in, in that it's not bound by a physical location. You can fork, right? You can you can um, airdrop and and so on. So, but but like nonetheless, I think the um, they will continue to evolve and reinvent themselves, and that's one of the principal reasons I have very high conviction long run Web three platforms, you know, grow bigger and and ultimately beat out um, you know things that are not building in this model um, because they just, they're, they're competing on very different terms. The second point that I want to touch on briefly is this idea of IP, which I think is radically changing in how we think about it in, in the context of just this open source, creative, common kind of chaos. There's a lot of still artists out there that are skeptical of, of moving on to this model. Um, what would be kind of your if for anyone listening out there that is deeply skeptical of NFTs or going this route, like what, what would be your kind of response to that? Or, or what would you say to them? Distribution is king. And, you know, the, the more, the way the internet works is that the more, you know, eyeballs you can get generally, the, the more ways there are to monetize. In, in the past, um, that monetization has been indirect, right? You first have to capture attention in order to drive, you know, drive that attention towards monetization through some other channel, and that's the story of Instagram influencers and, and the like. Now it's possible to convert attention directly into monetization by, by selling the canonical instance of the thing that is being distributed widely on the internet. The best way to get something distributed widely on the internet is make it permissionless to do so. So remove the concept of copyright, um, allow it to, to, to be you know, infinitely copy-pasted and, and you know, propagate widely and, and reap the benefits of doing so by selling the canonical internet native version or instance of, of that idea. And, you know, everyone talks about the Mona Lisa, but I, you know, I think it's a very good example, most widely reproduced image on the planet. You can't really value owning the, the canonical, um, the one that's hanging in the, the Louvre, right? Um, and I, I think most media assets are going to follow the same trajectory where the goal is going to be get it reproduced with as little friction as possible. So the mo most eyeballs can see it um, because that directly correlates to the value of the underlying NFT. Yeah, and now you can distinctly and uniquely like prove this this provenance um, yep. of of creation, and also even it, in, even if they there are derivatives, you could still monetize in many different ways. Many of which we may not have even seen or explored. Which is you know now we're seeing tokens on top of NFT projects, and so it's a very feels like a very wide open design space. But nonetheless, you know we're getting meaningful attention and traction, and so you know 
distribution is building quickly. Jesse, this has been awesome. I want to actually wrap with one. We never do this, but one action item for uh, everyone listening because you guys are um, have invested in so many B2C platforms. So one action item for users to do, go to a platform, do a Web3 interaction, collect something. Where should folks go? Lee, maybe if you want to kick us off. Yeah, I wrote a tweet storm about this a while ago about getting into Web3 with recommendations for products that people could play with. I think I think my advice to everyone is like, if you want to learn more about crypto, just participate and get in there and use these apps. So um, on the consumer side, I would point them to platforms like Foundation um, for collecting NFTs, Sound Catalog for music NFTs, Form Function for NFTs on Solana. Um Context for browsing what other people are doing on chain, um, mirror for publishing um, posts and perhaps crowdfunding creative work. Um, yeah, you can you can check out our portfolio by the way on variant.fund slash portfolio. Um, we have a list of companies that you can check out. Yeah, and I would just add on that list you'll find things outside of the you know creator ownership economy, but also in, in other categories like DeFi and, and low-level infrastructure where there are ways to participate and own, earn ownership as well. Um, and I think, you know, one good example that, that touches on a lot of the themes we've covered today is Grow Protocol, which allows you to, you know, in a, in a low-stakes way, earn yield on U.S. dollar um, uh, stablecoins. And in exchange for doing that, um, earn a, a piece of the underlying money marketplace um, through the Grow token which does actually have a vesting mechanism that aligns, you know, individual users with the long-term success of the platform. Awesome. Lee, Jesse, this has been awesome. Um, Varian is truly leading the way and uh, I've loved everything that you guys have done since launching and it's been really fun to see what you guys are doing. So uh, thank you both for your time. And uh, I think everyone, Santi and I are rooting for you guys. And uh, I think everyone listening to this is rooting for both of you. So yeah, keep up the good work. Thanks so much for having us. Yeah, this is great. Great questions. Thanks, guys, for coming on.